with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, and all the latest mental health-related news. This is the show where you'll hear all the latest updates, anything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and also how to make sense of latest media reports about research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, all without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental illness while reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate your joining me. This is the Wednesday, September 3rd, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope that you enjoyed your long weekend for the Labor Day holiday and uh, that you were raring to get back to it starting yesterday, although a short week, so that helps a little bit. Uh, and getting back to work or school whatever it is, is somewhat stressful, right? Especially after a long weekend. And uh, to what degree that may be stressful for any given individual certainly varies considerably. And I came across an article to talk to you about on tonight's show talking about how stress can actually be good for you. Now, this seems counterintuitive to say the least, right? I mean, for years and years and years, there's been so much documentation about the negative effects of stress on the body. It hurts the mood. It hurts your emotional state. It hurts your body. It increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, it causes damage to just about every organ in the body. It aggravates most every kind of medical problem you can imagine, it magnifies all sorts of aches and pains. So how in the world can stress actually be good for you? Well, I decided that this article needed to be explored and discussed, and as we go through it, uh, I'll try to give you some insights uh, as to whether the authors of this actually have a good point uh, and maybe some caveats with the points they're trying to make. Uh, so it starts off reiterating what I was just saying. We hear over and over again that stress is unhealthy. And all that makes us, well, stressed. But getting worked up isn't always a bad thing. After all, the body's fight-or-flight response is meant to be protective, not harmful. Well, let's stop right there and take that point right off the bat. Yes, of course it is. But the problem with the classic stress response is that uh, we no longer have the physical environmental threats that we once did. Okay, uh, We're not trying to defend our caves against wild and vicious beasts. All right? uh, so if we have too much of the fight-or-flight response, that was protected back then. Nowadays, it's excessive and all that surge of those fight-or-flight response chemicals, you know, noradrenaline, uh, norepinephrine, it's going to be harmful. 
and uh, overprotective, as it were, to the point where it is harmful. Now, the article says it's only stress when it becomes chronic or when we feel we're no longer of, uh, in control of a situation, that uh, when st stress negatively affects our health and well-being. All right, and I think I agree with that, but I think also it's not just the fact that stress becomes chronic, meaning long-lasting. It's going on for weeks, for months, for years, but it's also when it's in excess. All right, so then the article goes on to list five reasons that we should rest easier when it comes to everyday stress and how a little short-term anxiety can actually benefit your brain and body. And I'll put some emphasis there on a little. Okay, the first point is that it helps boost brain power. What? Stress helping to boost brain power? Uh, it's actually the case that a very severe excess of stress hormones or big, big surges of stress hormones that are long-lasting, in other words, chronic, like it mentioned, uh, severe enough and chronic enough, eventually will degrade our brain power. Uh, those stress hormones can do damage to the cells in the brain that regulate memory. Uh, but again, they're talking about a little stress in the short term. And they say low-level stressors stimulate the production of brain chemicals called neurotrophins, and this strengthens the connections between brain cells. In fact, this may be the primary mechanism by which exercise, which is a physical stressor, helps boost productivity and concentration. Now, I will say the article makes an excellent point here. Uh, I have read research into this and have discussed it on this show in the past. Physical activity, such as intense exercise, definitely does boost the production of so-called neurotrophins, the uh, main one being brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF for short. You can think of BDNF as sort of like fertilizer or a turf builder for your brain cells. It helps nourish them and protect them and help them grow, and it undoes the damage done by chronic elevated levels of stress hormones. So that much is true. Short-term psychological stressors, the author of this article claims, can have a similar effect. Plus, animal studies have suggested that the body's response to stress can temporarily boost memory and learning scores. Well, there's no doubt that we all need a certain amount of stimulation, and that could include stress, in order to remain alert and awake and therefore better prepared to learn, right? Uh, you can imagine a situation where if your environment is just so unstimulating, understimulating, that's going to make it harder to capture your attention, right? And that's going to make it more difficult to encode and store information. But again, it's a fine line between what is that optimal level of stress that stimulates the production of these uh, brain cell developing factors 
versus how much is too much, which is then going to produce too many fight-or-flight hormones, uh, which in turn leads to destruction of brain cells. All right, their second point is that stress can increase immunity in the short term. Well, we know that too much stress, especially over a long period of time, increases stress hormones, which in turn increases the level of inflammatory proteins in the blood. This is sort of a hyperimmunity state uh, because rather than protect us from invading uh, bacteria or other germs or uh, other dangerous substances, this excess in these circulatory immune compounds uh, increase the levels of inflammation and that causes damage. It's not protective. But again, they're emphasizing that some stress in the short term increases immunity. When the body first responds to stress, it prepares itself for the possibility of injury or infection. One way it does this is by producing extra interleukins. These are chemicals that help regulate the immune system, providing at least a temporary defensive boost in the immune system. Research in animals supports this idea as well. A 2012 Stanford study found that subjecting lab rats to mild stress produced a massive mobilization of several types of immune cells in their bloodstreams. Okay, again, so with their second point, it's a similar type of thing. Up to a certain level of stress and for a brief enough period of time, it may be positive in uh, giving the immune system a boost. Now, their third point is about making you more resilient. Uh, their point being that stress can make you more resilient. This is a little easier to understand intuitively. Learning to deal with stressful situations can make future ones easier to manage, according to a large body of research on the science of resilience. It's the idea behind Navy SEAL training, although you can certainly benefit from less extreme experiences. Repeated exposure to stressful events gives the SEALs the chance to develop both a physical and psychological sense of control. So when they're in actual combat, they don't just shut down. Uh, but again, even those of us who are not needing to be girded for such horrific environmental stressors can benefit from going through some stressful experiences and developing a sense of control as we master them and therefore improving our ability to bounce back from stressful situations. But again, I think the same overriding principle applies that it's as long as the stressful experiences aren't too severe and too numerous uh, that it would improve our ability to respond appropriately to stress as opposed to causing us to succumb to the negative effects of stress uh, and do damage and therefore have the exact opposite effect. In other words, too much stress over too long a time can 
degrade our ability to respond to stress, make us less resilient, not more. And this idea may hold even true at a cellular level. A 2013 University of California, San Francisco study found that while chronic stress promotes oxidative damage to our DNA and RNA, moderate levels of perceived daily stress actually seem to protect against it and enhance psychobiological resilience. All right, well, there's a couple more points about how stress can actually be good for you. And we'll take a look at those after we stop here for our first commercial break on Psychiatry Today. And we'll be right back after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know skipping doses of medication can be dangerous? If you have a chronic medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure, it's important to take the medication prescribed by your physician. It is also important to remember that although you take a medicine to treat a condition, it is not a cure for the underlying medical condition. It is used to control it. For example, taking medication for diabetes will lower your blood sugar. However, if you stop taking the medication, the sugar will rise again. Changes in both diet and lifestyle, like adding exercise to your routine, are equally important. Working with your physician by following his or her recommendations is the key to controlling your disease and maintaining your health. Ask questions if you don't understand something. Taking control of your health is the key to wellness. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Listen to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I'll guide our discussion on a fresh, news-based energy topic, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with you, going over all that's new in the world of mental health, and we're talking about Strange ways that stress can actually be good for you. And uh, so to continue that, point number four out of the five, the article makes, stress motivates you to succeed. Good stress, also known in the scientific community as you stress, may be just the thing you need to get your job done at work, for example. Think about a deadline. It's staring you in the face and it's going to stimulate your behavior to really manage the situation effectively, rapidly, and more productively. The key is viewing stressful situations as a challenge that you can meet rather than an overwhelming, unpassable roadblock. Well, I think that's very important. 
so it really depends on someone's point of view and ability to see that deadline or other stressful situation in uh, such a way in order not to be so stressed by it that they shut down and indeed uh, are able to be more productive and meet the deadline. <clears throat> now, this idea of stress or positive stress can also help you enter a state of what's called flow, a heightened sense of awareness and complete absorption into an activity. I guess another way of thinking of this, uh, if you're an athlete, would be like being in the zone. Flow can be achieved in the workplace, in sports, as I said, or in a creative endeavor, such as playing a musical instrument. And it's driven largely by the pressure to succeed. Well, uh, so this actually makes some sense. Of course, uh, some stress drives us to be motivated enough to do what we have to do and to succeed. But again, it's sort of a dose-response issue, meaning up to a certain level, stress can be a motivating, driving factor to lead to success. But too much can cause us to be overwhelming and shut down. Who among us hasn't experienced this dichotomy at work? In other words, too little going on, too little stimulation at work, and we're bored, disinterested, distracted, and not productive. On the other hand, too much stress at work, and we become overwhelmed, can't keep up, can't cope, and shut down, and again, not be productive. So work is a very easy example to, to see this dichotomy and it brings to mind the classic bell curve that we all function on and uh, all of us have a given set point on this bell curve of what is our optimum level of stress at which we function the best at work or in any other situation for that matter uh, and if you choose uh, right at the uh, top of the bell curve as the optimum point for any given person. Below that, too little stimulation or stress, and we won't function well. Above that, and again, we become overwhelmed with stress, and again, can't function well. So certainly up to a point, stress can motivate us to succeed. And lastly, they make the point that stress can enhance child development. Moms-to-be often worry that their own anxiety will negatively affect their unborn babies, and it can when it's unrelenting. It is well documented that when a pregnant woman is in a state of severe clinical depression uh, or anxiety or some other very adverse condition of her mental health, unfortunately it will have a negative effect on the developing fetus and certainly uh, in turn, on the newborn. However, a 2006 Johns Hopkins study found that most children of women who reported mild to moderate stress levels during pregnancy actually showed greater motor and developmental skills by age two than those of unstressed mothers. The one exception was the children of women who viewed their pregnancy as more negative than positive 
had slightly lower attention capacity. So that's very interesting. You see for women who view their pregnancy positively and have mild or no worse than moderate stress, that seems to have a positive impact on infant development, uh, whereas for women who view their pregnancy negatively, that's a sign of too much stress and that can actually harm infant development. So there you have it, folks. I think it's obvious the bottom line is that, yes, there may be ways that stress can be good for you, but not if it's too severe and not if it goes on for too long. That seems to be the take-home point. Next up on tonight's show, uh, an article that is certainly many, many years away from anything that could help we humans, but certainly a fascinating finding that may translate into a revolution in treatment of mental illness, especially post-traumatic stress disorder, but possibly depression and other illnesses as well. Neuroscientists were able to reverse memories, emotional associations, in the, and the brain circuit that links feelings to memories apparently can be successfully manipulated, at least in a rodent model. And certainly the hope is that this someday could be advanced to the human brain uh, where there are you know, somewhat comparable structures. Now, most memories have some kind of emotion associated with them. Recalling the week you just spent at the beach probably makes you feel happy, while reflecting on being bullied when you were a kid provokes certainly very negative feelings. Now, this new study comes to us from MIT, where neuroscientists reveal that the brain circuit that controls how memories become linked with positive or negative emotions, and they found that they could reverse this emotional association of specific memories by manipulating brain cells with a technique that uses light to control the activity of brain cells. It's called optogenetics. These findings were described in a paper published in the August 27 issue of the journal Nature, and it demonstrated that a brain cell circuit connecting a structure called the hippocampus, which is essential for storage and retrieval of memory, and another structure called the amygdala, which is responsible for applying an emotional valence or uh, an emotional value to memories, uh, the amygdala especially serving as our uh, fear center of the brain uh, because something that we are fearful of, the uh, association and the memory of that is more or less seared into our amygdala. And this pathway between these two structures plays a critical role in associating emotion with memory. And this circuit between these two structures could offer a target for new drugs to help treat conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder. In the future, one may be able to develop methods that help people to remember positive memories more strongly 
than negative ones. Now, memories are made of many elements, which are stored in different parts of the brain. A memory's context, including information about the location where the event took place, is stored in cells of the hippocampus, while emotions linked to that memory are found in the amygdala. Previous research has shown that many aspects of memory, including emotional associations, are malleable or changeable. Psychotherapists have taken advantage of this in order to help patients suffering from depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. But the brain circuitry underlying this changeability of memory is not known. So in this study, researchers set out to explore that with an experimental technique that they recently devised that allows them to tag brain cells that encode a specific memory, or an engram. To achieve this, they labeled cells from the hippocampus that are turned on during memory formation with a light-sensitive protein called channel rhodopsin. From that point on, anytime those cells are activated with light, the mice recall the memory encoded by that group of cells. Last year, researchers used this technique to implant or incept false memories in mice by reactivating engrams while the mice were undergoing a different experience. In this new study, researchers wanted to investigate how the context of a memory becomes linked to a particular emotion. First, they used their engram labeling protocol to tag brain cells associated with either a rewarding experience for male mice that was considered socializing with a female mouse, or an unpleasant experience, a mild electric shock. In this first set of experiments, the researchers labeled memory cells in a part of the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus. Two days later, the mice were placed into a large rectangular arena. For three minutes, the researchers recorded which half of the arena the mice naturally preferred. Then, for mice that had received the fear conditioning, the researchers stimulated the labeled cells in the dentate gyrus with light whenever the mice went into the preferred side. The mice soon began avoiding that area, showing that the reactivation of the fear memory had been successful. The reward memory could also be reactivated. For mice that were reward conditioned, the researchers stimulated them with light whenever they went into the less preferred side, and they soon began to spend more time there recalling the pleasant memory. And then, a couple of days later, the researchers tried to reverse the mice's emotional responses. And I think what we'll do is we'll pause here. We'll talk about that and the results and its implications after our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation 
Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay and all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how neuroscientists at MIT were able to manipulate memories in mice. And just to recap, they took mice conditioned for fear and made them prefer to go someplace they didn't prefer to before and Vice versa, they took mice conditioned towards something pleasurable and were able to manipulate them to get them to avoid going where they had preferred to go. Now, a couple of days after this, the researchers tried to reverse the mice's emotional responses. For the male mice that had originally received the fear conditioning, they activated the memory cells involved in the fear memory with light for 12 minutes while the mice spent time with the female mice, that was the pleasure reward stimulus, and for the mice that had initially received the reward conditioning, memory cells were activated while they received the mild electric shocks, that was the fear stimulus. Next, the researchers again put the mice in this large two-zone area. This time, the mice that had originally been conditioned with fear and had avoided the side of the chamber where their uh, brain cells were activated by the light now began to spend more time in that side, showing that a pleasant association had replaced the fearful one. This reversal also took place in mice that went from reward to fear conditioning. And that makes sense if you're able to manipulate 
their memory and therefore their emotional responses in one direction, it ought to be reversible. The researchers then performed the same set of experiments, but they labeled memory cells in the amygdala, uh, again, which is involved in processing emotions associated with memories. This time, they could not induce a switch by reactivating those cells. The mice continued to behave as they had been conditioned when the memory cells were first labeled. This suggests that these emotional associations with memories, again called valences, are encoded somewhere in the brain circuitry that connects this uh, certain structure in the hippocampus called the dentate gyrus to the amygdala. A fearful experience strengthens the connections between the engram and the hippocampus and the fear encoding cells in the amygdala. But that connection can be weakened later on as new connections are formed between the hippocampus and amygdala cells that encode positive associations. These results indicate that while the cells in the hippocampus may be neutral with respect to emotion, individual amygdala cells are pre-committed to encode fear or reward memory. Researchers are now trying to discover molecular signatures of these two types of amygdala cells. They are also investigating whether reactivating pleasant memories has any effect on depression in the hopes of identifying new targets for drugs to treat depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's really the take-home point. In other words, what is all the point of all this manipulation of mice memory and fear and reward activation along with it? Well, again, it's learning about how these mechanisms of memory and emotion work in a much simpler brain structure and one much uh, easier to study and manipulate so that we can try to gain some insights into how these things work in the human brain and that in turn will hopefully lead us to potential new treatments for mental illnesses uh, that are affected by negative memories, especially post-traumatic stress, but also depression. Um, you know, I, it is pretty fascinating stuff if you're into neuroscience. If not, I can admit, uh, rather dry. But uh, again, um, as it concerns research into uh, mental illness in terms of mechanisms that may point to eventual newer treatments, it is fairly groundbreaking. All right, now, next up on Psychiatry Today, yet another study showing that there may be some problems with prenatal use of antidepressants leading to more kids having ADHD. But uh, before you draw those conclusions, let's take a closer look at the data and even listen to what the study authors have to say about their results. Well, the researchers said that it seems as if children born to women who took antidepressants during pregnancy are statistically likelier to develop 
the mental disorder called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is a condition blamed for severe and frequent bouts of inattention, hyperactivity, or impulsivity, often leading to problems in socializing and education. Children and young adolescents are most frequently diagnosed with it, but the researchers stressed the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is low in real terms, and it may yet be explained simply by a statistical quirk. Reporting in the journal Molecular Psychiatry, a research team at Massachusetts General Hospital looked at the medical background of almost 1,400 children in New England who had been diagnosed with autism and 2,200 who had been diagnosed with ADHD. These two groups were matched against three times as many healthy counterparts who had neither of these disorders. Taking antidepressants during pregnancy was associated with the risk of autism in the offspring, although this link faded away once a maternal history of severe depression was taken into account. In other words, a maternal history of severe depression in and of itself is associated with an increased risk of having a newborn with ADHD, regardless of prenatal use of antidepressants or not. <clears throat> a similar association emerged between ADHD and antidepressants in pregnancy, but the risk remained even when the severity of maternal depression was considered. However, the investigators said this risk, modest in absolute terms, may still be a result of residual confounding, which refers to a lingering possibility of statistical error. In other words, it may not be a reliable finding. And they warned that any risk must be balanced against the substantial consequences of untreated maternal depression. In other words, so what if this finding is real, that there is an increased risk of ADHD with prenatal use of antidepressants, uh, the risk is low, and we know a lot more about the risk of maternal depression on the developing fetus uh, and on the newborn and the infant. And uh, that is much more substantial compared to this modest increased risk of ADHD. Previous research has found that depression is a major danger for both the mother-to-be and her baby, and the risk of a depressive relapse is multiplied five-fold if medication for it is discontinued during pregnancy. Independent experts were cautious about the study, pointing to a long-running debate about the mix of genetic and environmental causes for ADHD. Uh, it's possible, even likely, that the ADHD in the offspring had a genetic cause and did not come from the medication. The fierce debate over ADHD includes opposition from some doctors who contest the very existence of this condition, 
They fear the term medicalizes problems that are really rooted in a child's personality or maturity due to parenting or other social issues. And, you know, this certainly doesn't seem appropriate that uh, people who are scientifically trained with a strong degree of rigor would ignore all the scientific evidence that is so overwhelming um, over so many, many decades uh, about the fact that ADHD is an illness that causes a lot of disability. According to a 2013 report by the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, 6.8% of American children and teenagers have ADHD. But I want to reiterate one point made in the article uh, when you look at, you know, what, what if this finding is real, that in other words, that women taking antidepressants during pregnancy may result in a slight increased risk of ADHD in their offspring. Uh, again, absent treating depression in the mother successfully, uh, there is a five-fold risk of relapse of depression if medication is discontinued during pregnancy, which can lead to danger for both the mother-to-be and the baby. Uh, that point has to be considered anytime there is this discussion of what are the risks uh, versus the benefits of taking antidepressants during pregnancy. Uh, while there certainly are studies that show there can be negative effects, it's still the case that the overwhelming weight of the evidence argues in favor of keeping the mother on the medication to prevent a relapse of depression, which ultimately causes more harm than uh, the medication itself does. And we also know that this doesn't matter what time during the pregnancy that you withdraw the medication. Uh, the risk increases whether you withdraw it immediately upon finding out the woman is pregnant or if you try to outsmart the situation and withdraw the medication in the last trimester of pregnancy, in other words, within three months of delivery of the baby, this, in fact, is a very poor idea, and yet many people propagate this as the right thing to do, when, in fact, by withdrawing the medication right before delivery, you are setting up a woman to have postpartum depression. Uh, I can think of no worse an idea to perpetrate uh, something so cruel on the woman or her newborn. All right, we're taking a commercial break. Be right back after that. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770 696 
888-998-9862. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, they provide better quality care. They believe that excellent medical care is a right and not a privilege. They are concerned that the current economy has forced people to sacrifice their health. They have therefore reduced their prices to make it more affordable. They will continue to provide state-of-the-art care. They continue to believe that patient care counts above all else. Peachtree ENT Center, concierge medicine without the concierge price. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment or for more information. They're located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest, Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on the show, adding therapy to medications may speed depression recovery for some. Well, of course, we've known for a long time that the best way to treat mental illness is a combination of medication and therapy, especially cognitive behavioral therapy. There are also some illnesses for which cognitive behavioral therapy may take longer to start working than medication, but it produces longer-lasting results than medication. So let's see what this latest article about this issue has to offer. For about a third of people with depression, adding cognitive therapy to treatment with antidepressant medication helps them reach remission and recovery from depression faster. For about two-thirds of patients, adding cognitive therapy didn't matter. The researchers studied 452 adults with major depressive disorder who were randomly divided into two treatment groups, one taking antidepressants alone and the other getting antidepressants and cognitive therapy. All patients were given antidepressants at maximum tolerated levels and researchers frequently assessed patients' depression symptoms, so those who were not fully responding to one medication would be given another class of drug in addition or instead of the first. Twelve psychologists, a psychiatrist, and a nurse practitioner met with patients in the combined treatment group for 50-minute sessions twice weekly for at least the first two weeks and at least weekly or monthly during continued treatment. Researchers considered four continuous weeks of minimal depression symptoms to be remission and another 26 weeks without symptoms to be recovery. Of the 350 people who completed the study without dropping out or being removed, those in the combined treatment group were more likely to reach recovery than those in the medication-only group. And the results were published in the journal, Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. Overall, 73% of the combined treatment group achieved recovery versus 63% of the medication-only group. There was evidence that therapy also hastened the process for some patients. About 64% of those getting cognitive therapy plus medication achieved remission by the 12-month mark versus 60% of those on medication alone. 
people in the combined treatment group also reached remission in an average 33 weeks versus 38 weeks for the group on medication alone. But when researchers looked at the patients by the severity and persistence of their symptoms at the start, combined treatment only made a difference for the third of the group with severe but not chronic depression. For those who were less severely depressed, they didn't need the additional therapy. And if you had chronic depression, you didn't benefit from it. People with chronic depression had consistent depression symptoms for at least two years before the study began. For those with severe but non-chronic depression, recovery was 30% more likely with combined therapy, which is a big effect. Cognitive therapy, which is one of the most studied psychotherapy options for treating depression, requires the therapist to have special training. And this is part of the problem. There are many, many therapists out there with all different types of credentials, but not any therapist you decide to go to is going to have the special skills and training to do cognitive therapy. The idea behind it is to teach people how to monitor their moods. You can compare cognitive therapy to teaching someone to drive on ice. The normal human response is to pull back and steer away, but the best strategy is actually to be more active, spend more time going out and doing activities you like, not to pull away from personal interactions or activities. In the United States, treatment with only medication is most common, and this is in large part due to the uh, perverse incentives on the part of health insurance companies, where they discriminate against payments for psychotherapy and instead favor medication-only treatments. This is different than in England and Western Europe, where combined treatment is already the standard. Now, the findings of this study are not isolated, but it suggests that we have more work to do for people who have chronic depression who, again, didn't respond to the combination. One question the study doesn't answer is how psychotherapy-only treatment would compare to medication-only or to combined treatment. Cognitive therapy can be twice as expensive as medication therapy, which again is why the health insurance company uh, either doesn't pay for it or pays so little that most therapists don't accept health insurance. But in the long run, the therapy actually is cost effective in that it decreases the chances of relapse. So there you have it, um, yet another argument for including cognitive therapy in the treatment of depression, at least in severe non-chronic depression. I think that while the article doesn't mention it, the point about how the combination with therapy isn't as helpful with chronic depression is that it just that just illustrates what we know, which is that when you let depression go on untreated for too long, it becomes much more difficult to treat even when you combine medication and therapy. That's why it's important 
for the person with depression to get aggressive enough help as quickly as possible in order to recover. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a stress in the workplace update, but unlike most of my stress in the workplace stress in the workplace updates, this one is not from the point of view of the worker. This one is from the point of view of managers who have less stress when their work relationships are good. That doesn't come as much of a surprise, does it? Managers who enjoy a good relationship with their employees suffer less dangerous stress at work. According to a new study of 3,000 managers, Managers have heavy responsibilities both for their workers and for the organization's results. They need to make hard and at times unpopular decisions. Such factors would make us think it is stressful to be a manager. Much research has been conducted regarding stress, but not many studies have looked specifically at stress among managers. How is life among those in the driver's seat in companies and organizations. Are they more stressed than what is good for them? Well, some researchers in Norway analyzed the responses from over 2,900 Norwegian managers. The study measures four key stress factors, time pressures and workload, emotional strain, role stress at work, that is the role conflict between demands from top management and the demands from the employees. And the fourth one is role conflict between work and private life. More than six out of 10 Norwegian managers, almost 62%, indicate that they often or all the time experience time pressure or a heavy workload. Fewer than 5% say they rarely or never have time pressure at work. Although a clear majority of the managers experience time pressure at work, there are relatively few who have role stress at work or a role conflict between work and private life, which I think is a bit surprising. Only five out of 100 Norwegian managers experience role stress at work often or all the time, while just over one-third feel it some of the time. A little more than one of 10 managers experience a role conflict between work and private life often or all the time. I wonder if the results would be similar, similar if done with United States managers. Managers who feel they have control of their work situation and great freedom to make decisions experience less work pressure and emotional strain, and they also suffer considerably less role stress than managers who do not have such control. And this mirrors research that has been done on workers and to what degree they feel they're in control over their work stress. The factors that contribute the most to the manager's workload and work stress are the degree of unpredictability in the company and the unit they manage and the amount of changes that have been made in the course of the last year. Managers under a high work pressure considered their work performance and efficiency to be high. This is probably because they quite simply spend more hours at work. It is worth noting that managers experience significantly less stress when they feel they have a good relationship to their employees and the employees 
show a positive conduct and confidence in their managers. The best thing a manager can do to prevent work stress is to develop good relationships with the employees at work. When the employees are happy with what the manager does, understand his or her challenges, and participate actively in solving the problems, the manager will have less stress. This will probably be because the manager trusts the employees more and delegates more tasks to them, hence the work pressure will decrease. Stress can come from many sources. It can be caused by a manager's own reactions to a specific job situation, about how one handles work tasks that are challenging, any conflict between demands and work, family considerations. Now, managers who can't manage work-related stress can have frustration, irritation, anger, reduced self-confidence, and depression, which could lead to lower concentration, reduced motivation and work satisfaction, and a low work effort and performance. So this can impact worker productivity and a poorer bottom line. The perception of a high workload and role stress can reduce the manager's loyalty and commitment and make it more likely that they'll look for a job elsewhere. Uh, so in order to manage this stress, it's good to get enough rest and sleep, healthy diet, meditation, relaxation, get rid of things that take away time unnecessarily, and have uh, skilled employees and have relationships with people who can help you with stress and also switch jobs before it's too late. Have to wrap up tonight's show quickly. Hope that until we get together next time, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.